You guys remember me? I used to work here. Remember that? Uh, my name is Steve, and I am the executive pastor here. And I have not been on this stage since May, and it's hard to believe, but I have been on a pretty crazy summer vacation uh, in Africa. Not really a vacation, but I want to tell you a little bit about it today. Uh, we're finishing up our series today called My Big Fat Mouth, and I had a talk all prepared about profanity and harsh language, and I'm happy to give you that sometime uh, when you want to hear it, but probably not today. Because since I've gotten back from my trip to Africa, I've had a lot of people ask, hey, I, I can't wait to hear about your trip, and are you going to talk about it in the service? And so Paul and I talked a couple weeks ago, and he just gave me uh, the freedom to do whatever uh, I wanted to do today. So I decided that instead of finishing up my big fat mouth, we'll have, that'll have to wait, and I want to talk about uh, running for Africa. I have lost control over my slides here for some reason, so um, we'll get there. It is right there. And so... Uh, if you're of a certain age, you may remember that back in the day when somebody got back from a vacation, they would bring you over to their house and bring out the slide projector and you know, you run through the slides. And so that's kind of what I want to do today. But I want to tell you a little bit about the purpose for my trip and what I got to see um, because I was very encouraged, very excited um, about what I got to see there. Uh, back in the late summer, early fall last year, um, it was actually August 22nd. I just happened to have the voicemail still on my phone. Uh, I was training for the Monumental Marathon in Indianapolis through Team World Vision. Some of you are doing that now. Anybody signed up to run the marathon, half marathon? Yes, great. Good job, guys. I was, yes, raising money for clean water from, for World Vision. And because, as Kevin said, we have a very generous church, uh, our church was doing really well. Um, I was personally doing really well at my fundraising because of you guys. And uh, I got a call from World Vision. They said, hey, Steve, we'd like you to consider next summer coming to Africa with us to run the Comrades Marathon and see some of the, the work that we're doing in the field for clean water projects. And uh, I got very excited because here's the thing. Um, as I'm not a great runner, but I've been running for a long time, and I'm a student of running. I love to, to read about running and study running. So I knew that Comrades was not an ordinary marathon, that it, it was not uh, like most marathons you run are 26.2 miles. And I knew that Comrades was not a marathon, even though it's called the Comrades Marathon, that it was actually 56 miles. And so um, like you would have done if somebody had called you, I said, yes, I'd love to come, <laughs> right? Because that's what you would do if somebody asked you to come run 56 miles. And so... Um, I, 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 here's what I knew about Comrades at the time. I knew it was uh, in South Africa. I knew it was about 90K. It changes every year a little bit. The route changes. Um, I knew it was hilly, um, and I knew it was the world's oldest ultramarathon. Comrades started in 1921 by some World War I veterans who wanted to commemorate their comrades that were fallen in World War I. And so in 1921, they decided to run uh, from Durban to Peter Maritzburg. Uh, Durban is a city, a pretty nice-sized city in, on the southeast coast of South Africa. Peter Maritzburg is about 50 miles as the crow flies inwards, and inland, and it's about 2,000 feet higher in elevation. And so they ran in 1921 from Durban. It's about 12 guys ran from Durban up to Peter Maritzburg, and that was the first year. The next year, they thought, well, let's do something a little different, so they reversed direction. They ran from Peter Maritzburg down to Durban. Now, every year, uh, the race changes directions. And because Peter Maritzburg is 2,000 feet of elevation higher than Durban, uh, they have one year will be an up run, running from Durban to Peter Maritzburg, and this year was called a down run. 
And you can see from, uh, this is highly exaggerated on the elevation, but this is kind of what the downrun course looks like. The downrun's always a little bit longer, 56 miles this year versus 54 last year. Um, and even though it's called a downrun, it is a downrun because you lose 2,000 feet of elevation. But what they don't tell you is it's actually 5,000 feet of up and 7,000 feet of down. So even in the down year, there's quite a bit of up elevation. And so um, being a student of running, I kind of studied the course and kind of uh, learned a little bit about that. One of the cool things about Comrades started in 1921 is there's a lot of tradition around the race. And so one tradition is uh, this up, down, um, alternating every year. Another one is there are, there are five named hills on the course, but I'm going to tell you the people that live in South Africa will lie to you because there are more than five hills on this course. There are about 50 hills, and I can't tell why the five that are named are the named course are the named hills and the other, some of the other ones, which are much, seem much bigger to me, aren't. But uh, that's one of the traditions. Another tradition is around the starting line. One of the things you may know about South Africa's political history is that for many years they had a form of government called apartheid, where the white minority was in power over the black majority. Uh, basically, right now, South Africa has two uh, cultures that are bound together. It's the European settlers, which most of them were from Portugal, and then the, the black people, the black South Africans, most of them were, are from the Zulu tribe. And uh, for many, many years, the whites held power over the blacks. And because of this uh, apartheid government, the South Africa was not allowed to compete in many international competitions, and especially in the 80s and 90s. You know, they weren't allowed in the Olympics. They couldn't compete in the World Cup. And so what happened is that Comrades kind of became their international event. It grew and grew in the 80s and 90s. It kind of became an international event. And in fact, for many years, um, blacks weren't allowed to run Comrades. But then in 1990, Nelson Mandela showed up at the finish line and handed out medals. And it kind of became this national event uh, and became the pride of the nation. And so now there's about 21,000 people that run Comrades. And when you show up the, the starting line, uh, there's a lot of tradition around the starting line. And one of the traditions is they sing this song called Shoshaloza. Now, Shoshaloza is a miner's song. It was sang by the miners who were going, uh, going to work. And the words uh, are loosely translated as, uh, we will run far from these mountains on that train to South Africa. And so what an appropriate song to sing at the beginning of a race like this. But it's so beautiful to see all these cultures mingle around and singing this song together. Now, I mentioned that uh, Comrades is the oldest ultramarathon in the world. It's also the biggest ultramarathon in the world. 21,400 people showed up on the starting line. Um, you can see here, you can't tell yet, but we're very close to the start. It only took us about two minutes to cross the starting line. And then uh, in a minute here, I'll turn around backwards. I wish I'd have done it faster for this purpose. Uh, but you'll be able to see there are about three times as many people behind us. Uh, it goes on for many, many blocks. Uh, Comrades, as I mentioned, became the national event uh, during the 80s and 90s when they were under apartheid and they couldn't compete internationally. And so what happens now is that it, even though it's held on a Sunday, basically the entire country shuts down. There are about half a million people that line the course uh, to watch this race in person. And it's also broadcast on South African national television, all 13 hours straight live television coverage. Now, can, if you can imagine, there are very few things that we watch live on television anymore with Netflix and Hulu and uh, TiVo. But if you can imagine 13 hours of national television coverage, uh, that's what you get with um, Comrades. 
Uh, I tried to capture some of the beauty of the course. It was very difficult to take a picture while you're running, so you get something very blurry like this. Um, but this is about an hour into the race. We're headed down a hill called Polly Shorts. This is one of the five named hills. Um, 6.30 in the morning, the sun's just starting to come up. You can see the hilly terrain. You can see how many runners are out there with me. You're never alone on this course because of 21,000 uh, runners out there with you, but just trying to get a give you a picture of what this race looks like. It's all on roads, um, and one of the things that's really cool about it is that I ran with Team World Vision. World Vision has a large presence along the course. This is the school that World Vision helped start, and it's about the 35K mark, so you're about a, a little past a third of the way in. Now, we had heard the night before at the expo where you go to pick up your number and all that, there was a, a tent from World Vision there, and one of the representatives from World Vision South Africa said that they will have a tent at the halfway mark. And if you're listening to the podcast, I'm using air quotes right now because the halfway mark of a 90K race should be about 45K. This was about 35K, so it's well before halfway. Um, but she said, if you want to leave anything for the second half of your race, go ahead and put it in the bag. And so I left a can of Pringles. Um, I left some Twizzlers because you're going to be hungry and you eat a lot of junk food when you run long distances. And then I left all of my gels and my nutrition I need for the second half of the race. So when I got to this tent at 35K, well, first of all, I was a little surprised it was so early. But I, uh, I saw the woman from, South from World Vision South Africa and I started running towards her and she got my bag and she handed it to me. And I thought, well, I'm going to just sit down for a minute and eat some food. And I went to go sit in a chair and she said, no, you cannot sit, you have to run. And it's like... I got all this food, and, and so uh, what did I do? I uh, grabbed my can of Pringles, opened it up, and I grabbed a stack about that high. Do you know how hard it is to eat just that many Pringles? If you've ever opened a can of these things, you know that's difficult. And um, I figured, well, I can't run with the can, so I handed the can of Pringles to the kids uh, along the side of the road. And then I grabbed my Twizzlers, and I thought, well, I'm not going to eat these because those are kind of chewy. So I handed those to the kids, and then I grabbed my gels, put them in my pocket, and took off. Uh, one of the things that's maybe a misconception uh, that I had about World Vision is that um, I often say that World Vision is a global aid organization. And what I found out is that's not true, that World Vision is actually a conglomerate of about 44 national aid organizations uh, who work independently of one another. But they say that World Vision is held together with a handshake, a hug, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, the way this works is there is World Vision uh, U.S., which is headed by Rich Stearns. Maybe you guys have heard of Rich Stearns. Uh, he's stepping down, I think, at the end of this month. Um, but there is an equal organization in South Africa. There's an equal organization in Ethiopia, and they are peers. They are not uh, subsidiaries. And so uh, what happens is you have individual organizations working for the good of their country, um, and they work together to make that happen. And so there are two kinds of offices that World Vision has. There are support offices. The World Vision U.S. is a support office. Uh, their job is to raise funds, raise resources to be sent into the field. And those resources go to field offices. And field offices, like in Ethiopia, are where they actually do the work. They're, they're out in the field uh, helping the people uh, of that country. Interestingly, South Africa is the first country in history whose World Vision office has transitioned from a field office to a support office. South Africa actually now raises more money than they use in the field, and so they are a net donor to other World Vision organizations. I thought that was fascinating. And so really cool to see this school, uh, really cool to meet some of the people. In fact, we got to meet Noah, the head of World Vision South Africa, which was cool. We also got to meet Eddie Brown, who I'll talk about uh, World Vision Ethiopia here in a couple minutes, but Eddie Brown is the, the CEO of World Vision uh, Ethiopia. We got to meet him. Um, now, there's a lot of, I mentioned there's a lot of traditions around comrades. One of them is uh, at the finish line, 
there is a hard and fast 12-hour stop on Comrades. So you have 56 miles this year to run, and you have exactly 12 hours and zero seconds to run it. What happens is at the 12-hour uh, mark, as the time approaches, uh, runners are coming towards the finish line, and um, there's a man a, a start with a starter's pistol who stands with his back towards the runners, and at 12 hours and zero seconds, he fires the starter's pistol, not seeing who's behind him, and security guards stream across the finish line holding hands and don't let anybody else finish. And so you, the race this year was 56.121 miles. You could run 56.120 miles and not finish, comrades. And so people tend to exert themselves a little harder. They tend to go a little harder. I think that the uh, people who run, who um, manage the comrades race, have a sense of humor because in your packet that you pick up, um, you get this. a little planning brochure for uh, your funeral plan. So if the whole running 56 miles thing doesn't work out, well, at least you've got a backup plan uh, to fall back on. It is a, a pretty big uh, uh, endurance event. Most people don't hurt themselves. There are medics all along the course. There's all kinds of aid stations, um, but we do get this. But despite the risk of death, I did actually finish the race in 11 hours and 44 minutes and 44 seconds. And I know... Thank you. And I know some of you, I know all of you were here praying for me, and I know some of you were actually in the lobby not listening to Jerry preach, but instead watching my little tracker as I ran across the finish line. So thank you for that. My plan all along, because I knew uh, the hilliness of the course, I knew I wasn't the best prepared that I could be for this race, was to walk all the uphills and to run the flats and the downs. And I pretty much did that through uh, Pine Town there. You can see at the bottom, there's all my splits per kilometer at Pine Town, 68.8 kilometers, or about 42 miles, I did just that. I kept a pretty consistent pace of just over 11-minute miles, which is not fast, um, but it was consistent. And then at uh, 42 miles, my calves started to cramp up pretty bad, and I could not run the flats anymore, so I only ran the downs and walked the ups and the flats, and then at 50 miles, um, I couldn't run at all, and so I walked the last six miles, the last 10K. But finished in 11.44, about half of the field finishes between 11 and 12 hours. So it's not unusual, a lot of people in the 11 hours. And in fact, um, the finish is in a uh, large stadium, a soccer stadium called Moses Malhibda Stadium. It was built for the World Cup, and it holds about 50,000 people, I think. And um, there's about 20,000 people in the stadium at the finish line. So it's by far the biggest finish line I've ever been to. And you run into the stadium, and you do about three-quarters of a lap around the stadium, and then you get to the finish line. And having finished at 11 hours and 44 minutes, only 15-plus minutes before the end of the race, it was getting pretty loud, and it just got louder and louder as we were in there. And uh, we had, uh, because we're international runners, we had access to the international area, which is just right by the finish line. Unfortunately, you couldn't just walk off the stadium floor into the international area. What they make you do, because you've just run 56 miles, is you actually have to walk up the steps to the first concourse and around and then come back down the steps, which is much harder than walking up the steps. And so if you imagine leaving church today and running down to Lucas Oil Stadium, you'll be a little less than halfway there of to 56 miles, and then say, and, and then if they tell you, hey, you have to walk up the steps to the first concourse and then walk back down and then you're done. Uh, that's kind of what you got to encounter. But because we got to sit there right by the finish line and we got to watch as, um, as more and more of our teammates finished and people finished and people uh, throwing their arms up in the air and then the gunshot and the stadium just gets dead quiet. And 
people's hearts are broken as they walk into the stadium and they're a meter from the finish line and they don't get a finish. So it was crazy to get a C. What do we do the day after you run 56 miles while you rest? Uh, we stayed in a hotel in Durban that looked out over the Indian Ocean, and um, it was incredible. Uh, there were lots of runners there. They, in Durban, they call the day after comrades, they call it Penguin Day because everybody walks around like this. You can tell when you go down to breakfast, you can tell who ran comrades and who didn't. And so this picture, I, I took it actually as uh, my legs were dangling in the swimming pool, and I leaned back, and I said, oh, that's a nice picture. Quick, <laughs> it was about how much energy I had on the day after. Uh, I learned something from this race. I learned that I spend way too much of my life uh, living vicariously through other people on social media, on my phone. I spend way too much of my life on my couch and not doing exciting things and that every once in a while, I need to do something that scares the crap out of me and that I think that's a much better way to live. And um, so that was really cool to get to experience that. Now, the real purpose of my trip was not just the running. I'll talk about that in a second. But before I move on, because I know a lot of you have asked me about the race specifically, I just thought I'd let you, maybe if you have a question or two about the race, I'd love to answer anything that you might have. Does anybody have any questions? <laughs> so Susan asked, did, do I, did I have my splits figured out in advance to know if I'd be able to finish? No. I knew, I knew how fast I needed to run per mile, and I knew through 42 miles I was well ahead of that pace. And what happens is there are like six checkpoints along the way, and they have a hard cutoff. So if you don't make that checkpoint by a certain time, they pull you off the course. And when I got to the fourth checkpoint, I knew I was about an hour and a half ahead of where I needed to be. And so what, they have every kilometer along the course is marked, but it's marked not by how many you've done, but by how many you have left to go. So you can imagine that when you get to the first one, it says 89, and you're like, whoa, man, that's a long way. Uh, but they keep coming down and down and down. And so you know how far you have to go. And I had my watch on, and so I was watching, okay, how long did that K take? Okay, that took nine and a half minutes, and I was walking. And so I kind of knew. Um, so people would pass me, and every once in a while, somebody on the road would say, you're going to make it, but you've got to run. And I'd say, no, I don't. I've got, I'm doing math. I, I know how long I've got, you know. So, <laughs> so it was helpful that I had my watch with me. My phone died at 42 miles, and so um, I was trying to track it on Strava, and it died, and so I had no idea from my phone, but at least I had my watch on, so that, that helped. Yes? Yeah, how long was my longest training run? Well, I would not recommend training for comrades the way I trained for comrades um, because I was injured in the run-up to comrades, but I, I ran two marathons, 26.2 miles, um, but they were about three or four weeks apart, and so that was my longest training run. What they recommend that you do is run marathons on back-to-back -back days, uh, twice during the run-up. So you'd run 26.2 on Saturday, 26.2 on Sunday. I can't run on Sunday. Obviously, I've got a job. Um, but uh, yeah, so that, that's not, if you're going to do it, if you're thinking about doing it, that's not how I recommend training for it. But uh, that's what I did. So anything else? One more question, maybe? No? Okay. Would I do it again? Uh, that's a great question. I got asked that bo both services last week at Noblesville, and the answer was, I would do it again, but I don't think I will do it again. And what I mean by that is it's a great event, an incredible experience. If somebody came to me and said, should I run Cobrads? I'd say, yes, absolutely. But I think what I realized in this race was, um, like, my body is capable of much more than I thought it was. And there's a, 
there's a lot of races that I'd like to do that I've never done before because I didn't think I could do them. But now that I've done this, I'm like, well, maybe I could do that. And so kind of like if, if we've got golfers in the room and you get the chance to say, pay, play Pebble Beach, you play that. And then somebody said, would you play Pebble Beach again? Well, yeah, you'd probably play it again if you had the chance. But man, aren't there an awful lot of golf courses around you'd like to play? And so I think for me, there's a lot of events I'd love to do that probably would take precedence before I do that again, if that makes sense. So uh, the real purpose of my trip, as I mentioned, was not just running. There were two things I wanted to do. One, I wanted to raise awareness um, behind sponsorship for World Vision. My goal was to get 56 kids sponsored. That's one for every mile that I ran, uh, 56 kids. I got to tell you right now, as of this weekend, I'm at 50. And so I'm awfully close. I've got until August 6 to make that happen. Uh, but the second purpose was to see the incredible work that World Vision is doing in Africa. So our team of 70, we had 28 runners and 42 spectathletes that went to the South Africa portion of this trip. And then we split into five different teams and we went to five different countries in Africa to see the work that World Vision is doing. Because we raised money for clean water last year and we're doing that again this year through um, uh, the Team World Vision run, uh, we got to see a lot of the clean water projects. So on Monday, we rested by the, by the hotel. On Tuesday, we flew to Addis Ababa, which is the capital of Ethiopia, and we got in a car and we started driving. And we drove about two hours south of Addis, and we got to a place called Bui, where we were greeted um, by singing and dancing when we arrived at our very first stop. These uh, wonderful people had prepared food for us, had brought us in Coke and Fanta that were cold, uh, had put scarves around our necks and greeted us really like royalty. And I didn't know why. I didn't really understand why. Um, this was uh, a, a place that it took us a long time, even once we were in Bowie, to get to this place. And in fact, we were two hours late for our appointment, and yet they were still waiting and uh, celebrated when we got there. What we found was this is a preschool uh, it's a preschool that was helped, uh, that World Vision helped to fund, and it's a preschool where kids uh, learn to read. And I say learn to read because, as you can see, these kids both have their books upside down. <laughs> They're learning. They're learning to read. Uh, it's a school, preschool where kids uh, play games and do crafts, uh, just like any preschool here. But unlike most of the preschools here, this school had about 42 kids in it and exactly one preschool teacher who... Uh, if I can show you this, had complete control of this classroom at all times. This young lady in the yellow shirt, probably in her mid-20s, uh, she was a volunteer preschool teacher, and she managed this entire classroom on her own and did an incredible job. So I don't know how she did it. I've been around preschool kids. If you serve back in gen kids in the preschool room, you probably know how difficult it is to keep 10 in line. She kept 42 in line. It was incredible. Um, so the preschool was really cool to get to see, but that wasn't the reason that they greeted us with such celebration. The reason we found when we walked outside was this clean water access point that World Vision had put in last fall. And this got me a little emotional when I saw it because, as I mentioned, they put this in last fall. Last fall was when our church was running and raising money for clean water projects in Africa. And so I don't think the money that you donated and that I donated went directly to this project, but let's just pretend because it was the same time, right? And so I got to see as they opened up this water access point uh, for the day, and people came in and started filling their jugs. And I got to hear stories of people uh, like Tefana. Tefana was the, um, the principal of this preschool, 
And Tefana um, was a mid-40s woman who for her entire life has had to walk to get water. And it hasn't been clean water, it's been pond water. And uh, up until last fall, when this water access point was put in, she told me that she had a three-kilometer walk one direction, so about 1.8 miles one way to go get water. And she would do that twice a day. She and her daughter would do that together. And um, they would walk to this pond, and they would get water. Um, I'm just going to skip down. That looks a little bit like this. Uh, And they would use this for cooking and cleaning, and uh, they would boil it to drink it. Uh, They would use it for uh, laundry. Um, but this is the kind of water that they got. And uh, she would have to, to get there, she'd have to walk over these uh, dirt roads that were rutted and uh, dusty and through some pretty tough terrain. We actually had to cross uh, this canyon right here just to get to the preschool. Um, it's about 30 feet deep. And, and before they built this preschool, any kids that wanted to go to school would have to cross this canyon every day just to get to the closest school. And Tefana talked about having to walk across this terrain to get this water. And as difficult physically as that was, it was more difficult for her emotionally because what would happen is um, it gets very dusty in, at times in Ethiopia and the dust would be kicked up and uh, her, fa- her feet would be dusty, her face would get dusty, her face dried out and started to crack and bleed because of uh, having to walk down these dirt roads to get water. And Tefana said, because of World Vision, because I have clean water here on this campus, she said, I have my dignity back. She said, I'm learning to live as a new creation. And I thought, man, this is, it hit me that this is more than just healthy, clean water for people. This is really a lifestyle choice. And Tefana now has about three hours a day freed up that she doesn't have to walk uh, to go get clean water. She can do other things for her family and for her friends and for her village. Um, she doesn't have to worry about her face cracking and bleeding. She's got a beautiful, clear complexion. And it's all because of somebody's faithfulness in some uh, area somewhere that decided to donate to clean water projects and World Vision going and uh, digging that well. And so that was pretty incredible uh, to get to see. Now, one of the things that World Vision does when they put in a water access point is uh, they form a water committee. The water committee has, uh, is, decides who gets access and when to the water point. And so uh, World Vision builds these things and then turns them over to the community. And the water access uh, committee or the water, commi- water committee is the one who gets to decide those things. So it's usually made up of um, influential people in the area. It might be elders of the area. It might be uh, government officials. In this case, Tefana, who is the principal of the preschool, uh, had a key. She was part of the water committee. And uh, they decide how often it gets opened up for how long and um, um, which is really important so that it doesn't just stay open all the time and drain all the water and so that it doesn't uh, get vandalized so it's locked and, and has a key. Really cool uh, to get to see how they do that. But they don't just focus on water. Uh, World Vision has a, a project they call WASH, which is Water, Sanitation, and Hygiene. And so they know that it's not enough just to bring clean water to a community because what happens in a lot of places in Africa, and this is true in Ethiopia as well, is that they have a problem with open defecation. And there aren't enough latrines Uh, and everybody's house doesn't have a latrine, a bathroom in it. Um, And so what they'll do, the building in the background there, kind of in the uh, upper part of the picture is a latrine that was built by World Vision. And so they'll come in and they'll build a latrine and they'll educate people about the importance of using the latrine instead of uh, going to the bathroom outside. And then they'll form what's called a wash committee, which if it's by a school, it'll usually be high school kids. 
and they'll teach them the importance of uh, good sanitation and of using the bathroom properly, of cleaning up afterwards to prevent the spread of disease. And then for girls who are at that age where they might get their period, they'll teach them how to take care of that and how to clean up after themselves. And so it's very comprehensive. And I love that they do that with uh, the whole wash thing because it reminds us that it's much more than just about clean water. They educate, um, they talk about sanitation and hygiene. Now, even with Tefana's long trip, I mentioned that the water that she would have gotten would have been dirty. This is water out of a pond that was close to where we were in Ethiopia. And our team got to experience what it was like to do a water walk. And so we took these five-gallon jerry cans uh, down to the pond and filled them up. They weigh about 40 pounds each when they're full. And our team carried them up the hill from the pond um, just to our car, which was 300 yards, and we were worn out. I just can't imagine the strength of the women and girls, because it's mostly women and girls who do this work, the strength of these women and girls to do this for their families twice a day and to carry this back to their house to survive. And so it was a real eye-opener for us. Uh, One of the things that concerned me when we got to Ethiopia was they picked us up from the airport in these uh, Toyota Land Cruisers, these white vehicles that are pretty conspicuous on the roads. Um, And we had five of them, so we were always in a caravan. And having been to Haiti before, I know that the UN drives vehicles kind of like this, and people don't really like the UN in Haiti a lot. And so we've seen them spit on, right, Nathan? Nathan's, Nathan's nodding his head over here. We've seen them spit on. We've seen them throwing stones at. And uh, I was a little worried about how conspicuous we would be driving down the roads in these things. But what we found very quickly was that people in Ethiopia love World Vision. They loved, they'd see these trucks going down the road and people would drop what they're doing and they'd wave at you and they'd smile. Kids would run out of the fields, they'd drop their farm tools and they'd run out of the fields and they'd they'd wave and they'd start chasing after you. And in fact, uh, one of our drivers, Abraham, who you see here, Abraham's been driving for World Vision for 17 years and he'd tell us that often kids will chase down these trucks saying, my truck, my truck, because they go to a World Vision school or maybe World Vision brought water to their village and they have such ownership of these things. And, and in fact, they'll often chase, chase the vehicles. And so um, the roads in Ethiopia are very bad. They're almost all dirt roads. They're rutted. Um, they're very difficult to drive. If you drive a Toyota Land Cruiser here in the United States, you have no idea what these things will do. It is incredible. We drive them down the highways at 70 miles an hour, and they're driving these things over potholes that would swallow up my Hyundai. Um, and it's pretty incredible. But uh, what happens is you're often driving at 30 or 40 miles an hour, and you have to stop pretty suddenly to go over a pothole or a rut. And Abraham told us that occasionally a kid will start running after the truck, and he'll have to stop very quickly, and the child will run into the back of the truck. <laughs> World Vision's all about saving children. And um, so we asked Abraham, because there's so many farm animals on the road as well, and we said, how, Abraham, he's been driving for 17 years. How many farm animals have you hit? Uh, in your career? And he said, very proudly, none, never hit an animal. We said, how many kids have run into your car? And he paused for a minute and goes, oh, I cannot count. (laughs) count. (laughs) Uh, One of my highlights, uh, probably my highlight of the week was we got to meet our sponsored child at Bebu. We've been sponsoring at Bebu for about six months. My wife and I, our family sponsors three kids. Um, Two of them, three of them are actually, all three of them are in Africa. And Abebu was uh, one that is in Shoshogo in Ethiopia, and so we got to meet her. One of the cool things I love about how World Vision does sponsorship is, you're, you know, you send your $39 a month, and you have that relationship, that one-on-one relationship with that child. Um, but anybody can go visit their child. Like, you don't have to be a part of one of these trips. There's a place on their website that they give you that you can sign up, and you can go uh, 
I take a trip to go visit your child. But we got to, Abebo and I got to meet, and we got to spend about two hours together. Um, we started to talk, and I, she told me about her family and her dad and her mom and her three brothers and her one sister. Um, and she told me a little bit about school. But conversation is very difficult. Ethiopia is a very large country. It's about one and a half size, times the size of Texas in landmass, but it has 102 million people. So about a third of the size of the U.S. It's very large. I didn't realize how large it was before I was there. And out of those 102 million people, there are 83 different people groups that speak 83 different languages. And so we took our Amharic uh, phrase books and translation, translators who spoke Amharic, which is the national language, but when you get down into the country, people don't speak Amharic. They, in this case, they speak Hadia. And so we needed a translator to translate from Hadia, but there's only one guy in the whole place that spoke both English and Hadia. And so he was very much in demand as we had about uh, eight or nine of our sponsored kids in the program at the time. And so while he was busy, we'd get two translators, one that could translate from Hadia into Amharic and the one that would translate from Amharic into English. And it was a little bit like playing telephone or telestrations if you've ever played that game. Um, trying to have a conversation was very difficult. And plus, she's a nine-year-old girl. She doesn't want to have a talk with an adult that she just met, you know. And so uh, we stopped talking after a while and we just decided to play. And we played uh, with bubbles and we played with balloons. And, uh, and then uh, we got out some balls and started playing uh, the favorite sport in Ethiopia, which is, of course, it's not soccer. I thought for sure it was soccer, but it's volleyball. They love to play volleyball. In fact, we went to one of the schools and we took a, a bag full of volleyball or of soccer balls with us, and we were walking around, and all the kids were, of course, following the soccer balls wherever they went. They're just zoning on the soccer balls. And finally, when we were done with our visit, we got the soccer balls off, and one of the kids grabbed it, and he ran off with it, and he ran off to the volleyball net. And before we knew it, there were 12 kids and teachers standing around playing volleyball at the volleyball net. So after running, it's volleyball uh, there. Um, we got to take, uh, I got to watch as a baby took her first car ride. That was really fun. She'd never been in a vehicle before, and she got to ride in one of the Land Cruisers, and uh, she was a little nervous at first, but then as she was driving down the road and started to see some of her friends, and she would wave, and they would jealously, like, wave back and go, <gasps> you know, with their mouth. And then she thought it was pretty cool that she got to be the one in the car, and then uh, we got about halfway to the program, and she saw her mom out on the street, and her mom's like, uh, you know, waving. <laughs> But her dad did come to the program uh, with her, and so I got to meet her and her father. Um, I realized that uh, kids are the same everywhere you go, that they just want to have fun and to be loved and to know that there's hope. And uh, one of the cool things with Abebu, I got to meet her father and just shake his hand and look him in the eye and tell him, hey, I'm not here to replace you. Like, I'm here to come alongside you and support you. And uh, what a beautiful man he was. He was, it was great. I found out that Abebu's family is Muslim, which was a little bit of a surprise to me, you know, going through somebody like World Vision. But I thought about it and I thought, you know, that's exactly how Jesus did ministry. We, we talk about that a lot around here, that Jesus, he, he loved everyone. He ministered to many and he made disciples of a few. And that's the way World Vision does ministry. They will not go any place that they're not invited but when they're invited in and they're asked for help, they help anybody who needs help. And so I love that about the way they do ministry. Um, maybe one of the cool moments, probably one of the coolest moments for me of being in Ethiopia after meeting Abebu uh, was the last day that we were there in the development program. And uh, the pastor from the local church, uh, which is right next door, came over and he said, hey, my Sunday school students have prepared a little something for you. Could you come over and watch? 
and some of the students in his congregation are sponsored children. And so uh, we walked over to this church, and as we walked over, these kids were singing this song. Dusty in here. Uh, what they're singing is King Alatar, Jesus, King Alatar, praise to the King, Jesus, praise to the King. And it struck me that um, it's very difficult to get to Ethiopia. Uh, our flight back, we had to fly from Addis Ababa to Nairobi, Nairobi to Doha, Doha to Chicago. And um, it was 30 hours or so one way. John Culver is here. John went to Ethiopia uh, just a few weeks ago. It's a very difficult place to get to. It's, it's the other side of the world. And there's these kids on the other side of the world singing this song about the same Jesus that we worship on Sundays here. Well, and hopefully during the week here too. <laughs> and just amazing to me that our God is so big that he can reach people in that place, he can reach people in this place. And it was just a great reminder to me of a couple of things. Matthew 25, if you have your Bibles, you can open them real quick. It's, I don't think I ask you to open them there. Um, it's page 695 in this Bible on the floor. Um, I'm going to read from that. But first of all, I, I read this book a couple years ago, and I've just been rereading it since I got back. This is uh, Seth Godin, um, well-known management author. He wrote this book called What to Do When It's Your Turn, and then in parentheses, and it's always your turn. And uh, I remembered this, this quote from this book as I was rereading this. He said this, uh, what will you care about? There are so many opportunities, so many chances to find beauty or to ease suffering that the easiest thing to do is to pretend they don't exist. Because if they do exist, if that little girl will live a better life because you showed up, if that void will be filled because you cared enough to do something about it, if we actually recognize the opportunity that's in front of us, what are we to do about it? We have no choice but to change things for the better, to take our turn and make a difference. And as I reread that, I was reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 25. And uh, I'll just uh, put these on the screen for you. It says this. I just, I just lost it again here. Sorry, Max. There we go. It says, uh, this is Jesus speaking. And he said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Won't that be an amazing day? <laughs> I can't wait for that day. And he says this, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another, one from another as a shepherd se separates the sheep from the goats. Uh, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Oops, sorry, is that me and you playing together, Max? He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
And as I reread that in the context of my trip, there's two things that really stood out to me. And the first one was this. Jesus calls them his brothers and sisters. And so many times I'll use that verse, uh, 2540, and say, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. But when we call them the least of these, we're, we're missing a piece of the puzzle. It's almost like we're treating people like projects, like there's something that they have a problem that we can fix and we can solve it. And, and I think that's a, a little bit of a Western mentality in the church, but it's also something that, I mean, it's something I grew up with, you know, uh, we're going we're gonna to go help the least of these, but Jesus says they're the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. And I got to tell you, when you help out your brother or your sister, it's different than when you help out somebody on the street or somebody you don't know, right? And so our mentality in serving people needs to be, these are brothers and sisters of Christ. You know, Jesus calls them his brothers and sisters, and that really changed uh, the way I view them. The second thing was the verse says, whatever you did for these brothers and sisters of mine. And I think as I was thinking about this and uh, over the last couple of weeks as I've gotten back, I realized that we have um, given people a lot of opportunities to serve over the past few weeks. And if you've been here in the last two months, uh, we've talked about sponsoring a child and how important that is. And we talked about um, running a marathon or a half marathon to raise money for clean water. And hey, how about this New Heights church that's launching in Indianapolis? You can go with them and you can help plan a new church. And hey, would you bring school supplies for kids who are in need right here in Hamilton County? And besides, we need you to tithe and we need you to go serve in Gin Kids or GSM. And there's so many opportunities that we can get overwhelmed, right? There's a tendency to get overwhelmed and say, I, I can't do everything. And I think in this, Jesus gives us permission to, to say, you don't have to do everything, but just do something. Like whatever you did, whatever you did for these brothers, at least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And so for me, um, I've become really passionate about child sponsorship. Uh, and especially after this trip and just seeing what child sponsorship does, $39 a month, and the way it can impact somebody's life, um, you know, um, I've, I've just been amazed. If I can't send a baby $39 uh, herself and have her go buy water, there's just no place to buy water. I can't send her $39 and she can go to school all of a sudden. But man, when I send it through somebody like World Vision or some of our other partner ministries, you send that money and it gets put in community and then it gets added together and then they're able to drill wells and build schools and have sustainable agricultural projects, which we got to see. And they're able to help the community and, and, and grow the community. And then they turn those projects over to the community and let them be sustainable. And so I got to see that at work with a baby. And so, you know, if, if child sponsorship is something you, you're passionate about, if you missed when World Vision was here, I've got some kids here with me today. I don't have any kids here with me today. I've got some packets here with me today of kids that are looking for sponsors. This is Tamarat. Tamarat's birthday is next week. He's a six-year-old boy. He lives in Shoshogo in Ethiopia where I was. And if you uh, want to know about sponsoring a child, I'd love to talk to you about that. I'm passionate about child sponsorship. I'm passionate about running. This trip was perfect for me. It may sound terrible to you. That's okay. God made us all different. He gave us all unique gifts and talents and abilities and passions and skills to use for his glory. Go find yours and pursue it. You know, in this book, Seth Godin also says this. <laughs> he says, the thing is, there's no easy way to do this. No simple way to quiet the noise in your head. No proven method to earn the respect and applause of your family and friends. No guaranteed approach that's going to insulate you from heartache. This might not work. It might not be fun. I hope you'll do it anyway. 
know, because if we do, if we follow our passion, if we follow what God's given us to do, if we use our gifts and abilities to help grow his kingdom, one day we get to hear Jesus say, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Don't you wanna hear that? Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for uh, the people that are in this church. And I, I think about, I just look around the room and I think about the incredible skills and abilities and talents. And I know the passions that you've given to so many of us. And I think about what a difference we could make if we pull those together and work for your glory, for the least of your brothers and sisters. That whatever we do, God, we have confidence that you're gonna honor that, that you're gonna take it and turn around and use it for your glory. So we just hand that over to you today, Lord. Help us to not walk out of this room while you're working in our heart without doing something about that. Lord, we thank you for your, your love and that you loved us first and then go.